Thank you very much. This, it's nice out there. I've just come down from Hazelman. Lovely, quite warm. It's difficult to know whether it's going to rain today or not. Is it? Hands up those who say it's going to rain later. Oh, is it? Okay. And, and hands up those who say it's not going to rain. Oh, okay. So you're in the majority. You're the optimists. We, we will see. I hope it doesn't rain because I'll probably be eating lunch outside today. So oh, it's great to have you here today. So we're going to be reading from Luke's Gospel again, part of the generosity series. Generosity in ministry is the subject. And I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to be starting at verse 49. And I'm going to, going to be reading through to verse 2 of chapter 10. Let's get a little bit of context. The disciples had, well, Peter, James, and John had gone up the mountain with Jesus where Jesus was transfigured before them. They'd come down, there was some kerfuffle going on, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. So I'll take up the account in verse 49, where the apostle John says this, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed um, and been challenged, because I know I have, by this generosity series. I've been both encouraged and challenged by it. And Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. I think often that can go against our thinking, where our thinking might be, it is more blessed to receive than to give. Having said that, though, at Christmas and birthday times, I think we often find it a pleasure, especially when we give to children, just to see them opening their presents. We kind of take a pleasure in their pleasure. Even if after having opened the box, they throw the toy away and play with the box. Generosity is about giving. It means taking the focus off self and onto someone or something else. That can be very hard to do. Because by our own nature, we are self-focused, if not sometimes very self-absorbed. So generosity requires us to take focus off self onto someone or something else. And as we've been hearing every week, generosity covers more than money. Of course, it covers money. 
but we can also be generous in our attitude toward others, in the gracious attitude that we show others, a forgiving attitude, not holding things against people attitude. We can be generous in our hospitality, in our welcome of people in different areas. We can be generous with our possessions or with our abilities. This passage that I've read deals with generosity of spirit, generosity of heart. I'm going to look at it in three parts and they are as follows. One, the adventure of serving. Two, the cost of serving. Three, the inspiration for serving. So the adventure of serving, the cost of serving, and the inspiration for serving. Serving meaning, according to the dictionary that I looked at, the act of rendering assistance, of being of use to someone or something, of helping. So I've summed that up in the word ministry, hence the title generosity and ministry. And I'm going to work backwards in the passage. I'm going to start with chapter 10 and work my way backwards. I know that's slightly different, but that's how I'm going to do it. In chapter 9, Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out on mission. Now, what was their mission? Their mission was threefold. It was one, to preach the gospel. Two, to liberate people from the powers of darkness. And three, to heal So that was the ministry, the mission of the 12. And now in chapter 10, Jesus is sending out 72. Why is he sending out 72? Well, Jesus did things deliberately. And one of the things that Bible commentators say about the 72 is that after Noah's flood, there are 72 nations described. So if that's true, then symbolically, Jesus is sending disciples out to all the nations, symbolically, when he sends out 72. So all Christians, all believers, all followers of Jesus are called on mission. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are called on mission. Where is your mission field? Your mission field is where you live, your people who live around you. They're where you work with the colleagues, if you're in employment, where you study, or those you just generally know. That's your mission field. Or it may also be to nations or people groups on your heart. Maybe the Lord has put certain people groups or nations on your heart. He certainly has with us here at King's. The Lord has put certain nations on our hearts that we are helping to support. So that's our mission field. God promises to bless Abraham. The father who's described as the father of faith. We see that in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. Look at the sand of the seashore. If you can count your number of descendants, they're going to be as vast as those are. And I'm going to bring you and bless you. I'm going to bring you out of where you are to somewhere else. And I'm going to bless you. Why does God want to bless Abraham? Well, he wants Abraham obviously to be blessed. But also he wants Abraham to be a blessing. So it's not simply Abraham's going to get blessed for his own sake. Abraham is going to get blessed so that he can bless others. What about you and me? You and I, we are blessed by God. Now, I'm not saying there are no problems in life. I'm not saying there are no disappointments. There, are no, there is no pain. There are no tragedies. Of course, there are those things in life. Nevertheless, I'm sure that as you look back on your life, you can see the blessing of God on your life. 
The fact that you're here indicates to me that there's something of the blessing of God is on your life. Because God has brought you here to this place in order to hear the word of life. To experience the word of life. So that in itself is a blessing from God. And we have received many blessings from God in our culture. Blessings of provision. Blessings of housing. Blessings of education. Blessings of financial provision. All sorts of blessings that we've received from Almighty God. Why? Yes, so that we can enjoy the blessings of God, but also so that we can be a blessing to others. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, it doesn't have light by itself, but it reflects the light of the sun, so we receive the blessing of God that we might reflect it back to others and bless them as well. To take the emphasis off ourselves, to take off us being so self-absorbed onto others that we might be a blessing to them. Before Christ, before we came to know Christ, we tended to look for our security and self-worth in different things. In our achievements, for example, I passed the 11 plus, I passed the 12 plus, I got X amount of GCSEs, I got these A-levels, I went to that university, I've got this job, I've got this amount of money, I live in this kind of neighborhood, I drive that kind of car. All those kind of things can help us, if we're not careful, be our security, Before we came to know Christ as Lord, those things may well have been our security. Now, I'm not knocking those achievements at all. Or maybe it's our our social status, our money, these kind of things in which we place our security. But when we come to know Christ, things change. When we come to know Christ, we are born again. When we come to know Christ, we have a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Something Dynamic and radical has happened within us when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it means this, that our security is no longer based on our achievements, no longer based on our social status, no longer based on the things of this world, but they're based on the things of Christ. He is the rock on which we stand. Amen? Christ is the rock on which we stand. Your times are in his hands. They're in the the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ, who does not change. He is the rock. He is our security. He is the anchor. We sometimes sing that song that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock that cannot move. Christ becomes our security. We have a new identity. We have a new way of looking at ourselves. I love Psalm 139. I read it again and again and again and again because I find it so powerfully encouraging. Because it tells me about God and it tells me about myself. It tells me about something about what he is like and it tells me about who I am. And one of the things that it tells us in Psalm 139 is this. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's who you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are knitted together in your mother's womb by the Lord Almighty himself who planned you from before the foundation of the world. Now, how great is that? Where is your security? Where is your identity? It's not in your achievements. It's not in your social status. It's not in the car you drive. It's not in the job you have. It's in Christ and Christ alone. All those things will be shaken. All those things can move. All those things can go. But Christ, the rock will never move. Amen? Amen. Amen. And in Ephesians chapter... See, we've got an adventure ahead of us if we're up for it. Are you up for an adventure? The adventure of serving. Are you up for it? Right, because there's an adventure ahead of you. And I know there's an adventure ahead of you because it tells you in Ephesians 2, chapter, Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. 
Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork. Now the Greek word for that is poema. And it means this. It means a work of art. A masterpiece. So we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. So when you get up in the morning and you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror, I'm sure you say to yourself, I am God's masterpiece. I am God's work of art. Because you are. Now it may be that things have been said to you in the course of your life, the way that people have treated you and they've tried to put you down and drain away your confidence. But actually you're God's masterpiece. You're God's poema. You're God's work of art. Now, there's a young man who went to a quarry, and he wanted a particular block of stone. Big block of stone, you know. Not a little, big block of stone. He wanted a specific block. Why did he want this big block of stone? He wanted this big block of stone because when he saw the stone, he saw something in it. And the young man's name was Michelangelo, the Renaissance artist. And he saw this wonderful work of art in this block of stone. And I happened to see it the other month because I went to Rome. I went to the uh, St. Peter's. And inside is this block of stone which he carved called the Pieta. And it's of the dead Christ in his mother's arms. It's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. You're God's work of art. And maybe when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you just see the block of stone. You know, nothing exciting or inspiring or... But Jesus sees something different. He sees a work of art. He sees a poema. He sees a masterpiece that he created before the world began. and, And there are specific things that God has called you to do. And we can use not just our gifts and our talents, but our experiences of life to help other people. I read this. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some hands that only you can hold there are some needs only you can meet and God has prepared you for those they're waiting for you God has crafted you in such a way that there are things for you to do that only you can do now how amazing is that you may have been dismissed in life but Jesus certainly doesn't dismiss you he says you're my masterpiece and I've got things for you to do there's an adventure ahead of you if you are up for it so are you up for it well, there was a, 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 another man whose name was Eric Liddell, and a film was made about him. It was called Chariots of Fire. You may well have seen it, and I want to show you a clip from this film. Now, he was of Christian heritage. He was, his parents were missionaries in China, and his sister was quite keen on Christian work, and she wanted her brother to be involved in Christian work, and he wanted to be involved in Christian work, but he could also run, and she disapproved of his running. So in the extract that I want to show you, he tells her why he wants to run. I've decided. I'm going back to China. The missionary service have accepted. Oh, Oh, I'm so pleased. I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny. Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, 
I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. It's not just fun. To win is to honour him. Jenny. Jenny. So he says that I believe God has made me for a purpose and when I run I feel his pleasure. In other words, the gifts and abilities and talents uh, and opportunities that God was going to give him, he would do it with all his heart. Now, the same is true of you and me. And I am blessed as well when I see many people serving the Lord in this place. And on a Tuesday, for example, and on a Friday morning, we have our uh, parent and toddler group where we have many parents from different backgrounds coming with their children. And, uh, and our team of helpers are so good, so warm, so lovely towards them. And they're using their gifts and talents in, in order to minister to those people. And it's such a blessing to see it. Atheism, on the other hand, tells us we're here by chance. Atheism tells us it's all random. Atheism tells us our lives are going nowhere. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. He is saying that our lives have divine purpose and meaning. So there is an adventure to serving if you are up for it. Jesus is calling you. You're his handiwork. You're his poema. You're his masterpiece. You're his work of art. And God is calling you to use what he's given you to hold the hand of someone that only you can hold. But first, you have to give yourself to Jesus wholeheartedly. I guess that at the end of this meeting, if Neil, who's leading the meeting, said, anybody like to give their life to Jesus and someone put their hands up, we would be wildly enthusiastic. We'd be really happy. We'd say, please come down to the welcome area. There'll be someone to meet and greet you. We'll give you a pack of information. Let's get you connected and all that kind of stuff. And that's all great. Look at what Jesus does here in chapter 9. He said, when someone rushes up to him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to triumph through political power. I'm not going to triumph through military power. I'm not going to triumph through the popularity of of the populace. No, no. I'm going to triumph through hardship. I'm going to triumph through making myself low. I'm going to triumph through serving. I'm going to triumph through suffering. I'm going to triumph through death. That's the kind of Messiah that we are following. Now, when I first became a Christian, I don't know what it, what it was like for you, but for me, it was like all the lights went on. Instead of seeing things in monochrome, it was like glorious technicolor. And, uh, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the joy of the Lord, wildly enthusiastic about the Lord, singing, dancing, praising Him, reading the Bible, praying, fantastic, everything was sweetness and light. But I do wish at that time that someone had told me that the road was going to be hard at times. I wish someone had told me that there were going to be tragedies to have to face. I wish someone had told me that there were going to be disappointments. I wish someone had told me that I was going to fail. I wish someone had told me that it was going to be very tough. Because if I had been told that, I might have been better prepared for my Christian experience. Well, you can't say you weren't told. There is a cost to our serving. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
So what does he mean by that? Let the dead bury their own dead. Well, he's obviously not talking about physically dead. Because for physically dead people can't do anything. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't feel, they can't move, they can't do anything. He's talking about spiritually dead. A spiritually dead person is totally oblivious to the spiritual realities of life. He's saying, don't live in that realm of spiritual deadness. Unresponsive to the Holy Spirit, unmoved by God's word, indifferent to the truth, unresponsive to the Holy Spirit, unwilling to rejoice in the Lord. These are signs of spiritual deadness. Jesus is saying, you have to give yourself to me unreservedly. Christianity, my Christianity, Jesus is saying, is not a leisure activity. It's not an add-on. It's not a bolt-on. It's not something that you, you do when you feel like it. No, I require total commitment. That's what Jesus is saying here. Holding back, he's saying, is not the key to life. Spiritual deadness is not the key to life. He says, as you give yourself to me, you will experience true life. Life in all its fullness. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Life in all its fullness. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Sometimes we reverse it. And we tend to think that Jesus has come in some shape or form to rob us. You know, and the reason we think like that is because we're born naturally in spiritual deadness. So when Jesus says, give yourself wholeheartedly to me, we kind of, well, well, I'm not so sure, you know. I give this bit and hold this bit back. No, no, I want all of you, Jesus says. I want all. Because when you come to me, you'll find I am the way. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way that leads to life. Life in all its fullness. When you give yourself to me, when you hear the call of God in your life, when you take part in the adventure that I'm calling to you, you will find that you will have life. You will find that you grow as a human being. You will find there will be a greater sense of fulfillment in your life as you give yourself to me. As long as you hold back, as long as you, you'll find, you'll never find that full sense of fulfillment. Give yourself to me. I am the way to life. And it takes us a while to really work that out into our lives. In verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord. Sounds good. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus is saying, no, no. Don't go back. Is he saying, don't honor your parents? No, he's not saying that. But what he is doing, he's speaking into a patriarchal society. He's speaking into a society where what dad and the family think is crucial. It's that kind of shame culture. You follow the way of the culture. I've seen this when I've been in Nepal. How the power of the family, what they say, what they think, the cultural expectations are so very, very strong. And some of you know that from your culture. And to go against that is hard, is difficult. You can suffer rejection. You can suffer persecution. Ostracism is a result of that. But Jesus is saying, no, you follow me. You put me first. What I say is more important than your culture. What I say is more important than your family. He's not saying dishonor your family. No, no. But what I say is more important than their values. My values are more important. Follow me is what he's saying. You can't hold back on the old life and be a disciple. There's a cost to serving. Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So in those days, they would have had a hand plow with oxen, and they would be plowing in the field, walking behind the plow. 
And Jesus is saying, using this as an illustration about looking back. If you want to plow, and I don't know much about plowing, but I do know this. If you want to plow a straight furrow, you have to look ahead. You have to have an object or something that you're looking at, focusing on, so that you get a straight line for the plow. And if you're looking behind you, then the plow is going to go all over the place. And worse than that, it may encounter a boulder that you're not watching and smash your plow and destroy your livelihood. So Jesus is saying, no, don't look back at the old way of life. Don't be tempted to go back to the old way of life. But keep focused on me. You know, there is a cost to this. It's difficult sometimes. It's hard sometimes. We may get rejected. We may get persecuted. We will get tempted. There will be heartaches. There will be pain. There will be tragedy. There will be prayer that we're praying and we're finding it difficult to hold on because we're not seeing the answer. It's a journey of faith, not sight. And sometimes the going gets tough. And when the going gets tough, the temptation is to take our hands off the plow. To just leave it and wander off. Let the oxen do their own thing. No, no, no. You're not fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus said, if you're doing that. Keep your hands there. Keep focused on me, on my word, and follow me. And maybe you have wandered a little bit. And the Lord might say to you this morning, no, don't do that. Come on. Get back on track. See where I'm taking you. Follow me. Yes, it's not always going to be sweetness and light. There will be difficulties. But follow me because as you do, it leads to life. Eric Liddell, the guy in the video, went on to his missionary work back in China. He did get an Olympic gold at the 1924 Olympics. In fact, he also got a bronze as well. But he later died in a Japanese prison camp at the age of 43. There was a cost I trust that we will never go through his experience. But nevertheless, there's a cost to following Jesus. So there's an adventure. There's a cost. Now the inspiration for serving. Look at what John says in verse 49. He says, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Well, he's just totally ungenerous there. He's totally ungracious. You know, they're not part of our stream. They're they're not part of our church, you know. Yeah, we don't like it. We don't like the way they're doing it. We don't like what they're doing. Uh, But Jesus says, no, no, don't stop him. For whoever's not against you is for you. Jesus, uh, John, ungenerous, but it gets worse. Verse 54, the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus. And this infuriates the disciples. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Where did he get that idea from? Well, I guess three of the disciples had been up the mountain with Jesus and they'd seen Moses appear and they'd seen Elijah appear. Now, they probably remembered the story, or they may well have remembered the story about Elijah. Because Elijah, in his day, the wicked king wanted to get hold of Elijah. So he sent some soldiers to get hold of Elijah. And the soldiers came and they said to Elijah, come down here, the king wants you, O man of God. And Elijah says, well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it does. That happens twice, in fact. So I wonder if the disciples thought, aha, Elijah was a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, a greater prophet. Maybe we can bring fire down on these guys. Let's ask if we can bring the fire down. And Jesus says, no, he rebukes them, in fact. You see, the fire of God meant the judgment of God. Fire of God represents the wrath of God on evil. And Jesus rebuked them. Why the difference between Jesus and the disciples' attitude? Why the difference between Jesus and Elijah? 
Well, there's another episode, isn't there, where soldiers come to arrest a prophet. And the soldiers come in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest the ultimate prophet. And one of the disciples cuts off one of the soldiers' ears. And what does the ultimate prophet do? He heals him. And the soldiers abuse Christ. They beat him. They humiliate him. They nail him to a cross. And how does he respond? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. The fire that's going to fall on us, as we believe, is not the fire of God's judgment. The fire that's going to fall on us is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But the fire that's going to fall, the fire of God's judgment is going to fall on him. And when we have the fire of the Holy Spirit come upon us, we experience the love and the kindness and warmth and friendship of God. When Jesus gave himself away for you, he emptied himself. When you give yourself away to him, he fills you. When he gave himself for you, he was rejected, forsaken. When you give yourself away to him, he will come in and love you. And when we begin to see what Christ has done for us and how he sacrificed his life and how the fire of God's judgment fell on him instead of us and we received the fire of the warmth of the Holy Spirit instead, that's an inspiration for us to give ourselves to him. I read this, Tim Keller wrote this, and I was quite struck by that. Living for Jesus will free us from the melancholy burden of living for ourselves and the self-absorption that comes with that. Living for Jesus will free us from the melancholy burden of living for ourselves and the self-absorption that comes with that. We find that as we focus on ourselves, 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 It's not very satisfying. But as we reflect something of the blessing of God to others, we get blessed as a result of that. One of the men in prison with Eric Liddell wrote this in tribute to him. Often in an evening, I would see him, i.e. Eric, bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life. And with enthusiasm and charm, it is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. I thought, what a wonderful thing to say about somebody. As I was studying about Eric, I noticed something. I noticed that I shared the same birthday as he did. And I thought, I wonder what I would like to be written about me. By the way, it's the 16th of January, should you care to make a note on your... (laughs) mobile phone right now (laughs) I wonder what would you like to be written about you there's an adventure of serving you're God's masterpiece you're God's work of art and he has planned things for you to do from before the foundation of the world there are some hands that only you can hold there's a cost to serving we can hold back we can hold, or we can go and give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus and receive the life that he gave, 
promised to give us. There's an inspiration for serving and the inspiration of Christ himself who emptied himself, made himself nothing in order that we might be filled and brought into his family. So let's be generous with our ministry. Amen. Amen.